0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. (sighs) It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now.
1: My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD-holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously-researched American history come to life through entertaining stories— Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. From the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify.
0: Useless Information
1: Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. When I released this episode on July 20th of 2008, my then-fiancé and now-wife Mary Jane, we were in the process of moving to our newly purchased house, so I needed to come up with a story quite quickly. So I once again turned to my book, Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, and recorded this fun story titled The Flubber Fiasco. It really is a cute story. It would be another 15 years before I grabbed another story from any of my books. So basically, every story recorded after this one was newly researched and told. Enjoy. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman and today's story is one that I call the flubber fiasco, or how you just can't keep a good toy down but before we get to the story on flubber let's start with our question of the day and today's question has to do with the term bluetooth which you hear everywhere with uh, whether it's for hand-free headsets for mobile phones wireless networking between computers and its peripherals game consoles like the nintendo wii sony playstation three and so on even pda's you hear the term bluetooth all the time but why is it called bluetooth and that's my question for you why are they calling this short-range wireless network type of connection, Bluetooth. Now, leave in suspense for a while, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and, of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: And now for today's story on the Flubber fiasco. So I guess we should first start with a little definition of what flubber is now flubber is this rubbery substance that was invented by uh, Fred McMurray in the movie the absent-minded professor way back in March of 1961 of course it's not a real invention but in the movies it was this great rubbery stuff that defied the laws of physics and he attached it to the sneakers of basketball players and they would go flying through the air Uh, cars will bounce and fly also but the term flubber is actually a combination of flying rubber. You take the first three letters of flying, fly, take the last four letters of rubber, burr, and you get flubber. You get it? Well, so much for definitions. Now, I'm sure you've seen one, or at least heard of one of the flubber movies. As I said, it goes back to the movie The Absent Mind Professor, which debuted in March of 1961. The absent Mind Professor was actually a phenomenally successful movie in its day and made Disney a ton of money. And of course, they wanted to get more cash out of the cow, so they decided to make a sequel. Now today, they'd probably call it The absent Mind Professor 2, but they were a little bit more original and in 1963 released Son of Flubber. But that wasn't the end of it. They didn't want A Good Thing to Die, so they then made a version for TV starring Harry Anderson, which wasn't quite that uh, successful. And then in 1997, made a new theatrical version starring Robin Williams, which most people would say was fairly successful. Now, as I'm sure you're well aware, all good movies today have tons of product tie-ins. I mean, just think about The Lion King and Toy Story. They were Lion King dolls and Toy Story dolls, drinking glasses, clothing, stickers. It just seems like everywhere you look, uh, there were tie-ins. And of course, even the latest incarnation of Flubber with Robin Williams was no exception to this. It just seemed like Flubber was everywhere. Disney geared up for it and they decided to get as much money as they could out of that rubbery substance. But what few people know, however, is that there was a less successful tie in when Son of Flubber was released way back in 1963. In fact, it may possibly be one of the most bizarre stories in all of toy history. So here we go. I'm sure the marketers of this toy spent hours and hours and hours thinking of names. What could they call a product, a rubbery product from the movie Son of Flubber? Maybe something like uh, green bouncy stuff or super duper bouncing goop. Nope. They took the less obvious name of Flubber. I don't know where they got that from. Anyway, uh, joking aside, Flubber was marketed by a toy company at that time known as the Hassenfeld Brothers, which today has been shortened into Hasbro, which is the second largest toy manufacturer in the world. Now, this particular formulation of Flubber at the time was just a mixture of rubber and mineral oil with some coloring and had properties similar to that of Silly Putty. In other words, it bounced like a ball and, of course, you could make Comic imprints. Now, this product was introduced to the market in September of 1962, just prior to the premiere of the movie, and Hasbro sold millions of them. It was a phenomenal success. They advertised, and this is in quotes, that flubber is a new parent approved material that is non toxic and will not stain. That's the end of the quote. But then reports started to come back that some children were developing full body rashes and sore throats from the product in fact the fda the federal food and drug administration began investigating the product to see if in fact the claims were true i don't know doesn't sound very non-toxic to me does it sound to you anyway the big wigs at hasbro were mystified they didn't know what could be wrong with this product after all it was supposed to be harmless and it passed all of their safety tests. In fact, similar formulations were used by other toy manufacturers for years. Anyway, in March of 1963, a Kansas woman filed a big lawsuit against Hasbro for $104,000, which today is probably well over a million dollars, claiming that the flubber had caused rashes so severe that both she and her three-year-old son required hospital care. So Hasbro really had no choice but to retest the product. But instead of testing on kids, which is kind of you know questionable, they ended up using volunteer prisoners as guinea pigs. One prisoner, in fact, developed a rash on his head. Now, why he was rubbing flubber on his head, one will never know, but it became clear that there actually was a problem with the product. It seems that the flubber could irritate the hair follicles in a very small percentage of the human population. What to do? What to do? What would you do if you're a Hasbro? Well, by May, over 1,600 complaints had been received Uh, Even though, you know, some of them were for actually products made by other companies, but they had no choice but to issue a voluntary recall. And three million flubber balls were returned to the company. And then came the very, very big question. What do you do with so much flubber? How do you dispose of it? What do you do with a very large mass of green, rubbery stuff? Well, in these days, before people concerned about air pollution, the obvious answer was to just incinerate it, burn it. And, of course, that seemed like a really good idea until they actually sent it off to the local incinerator. And they got a report back that a huge black cloud had formed and blocked out the sun in the area around the incinerator. It turns out that flubber would bounce, but it couldn't be burned properly. So Hasbro had a big mess on its hands, and the flubber went right back to Hasbro, and they had to deal with it once again. So it was decided the ball should simply be trucked off and given a proper barrel in the city dump. And this seemed like a really good idea until Hasbro received a call from city officials telling them that kids were breaking into the dump and stealing it. So the product was recalled because it was irritating kids' uh, hair follicles, and now is getting back into the hands of the kids. So back to Hasbro, the flubber actually went, and they still had to deal with the disposal of it. Now, the next thing they did would be something that would be very, very illegal today. It was decided that they dumped the balls into a large northern new england lake now it has been reported in the popular literature that they actually dumped it in a bay off of rhode island but that's actually not true they took it to a large northern new england lake the workers drove it to the secluded lake and started to dump case after case of the flubber into the water but very quickly they learned that flubber floats rubber floats on water they had to then hire two fishing schooners. And for four days, they fished out an estimated 50,000 flubber balls from the lake waters. And of course, right back to Hasbro, the flubber went. Now, Hasbro's next solution was actually the simplest of them all. They were building a new warehouse, and they decided to simply bury it in their own backyard. What they did was, and it's a four-step process, one, you dig a very, very big hole, two, you pour in a truckload of flubber, three, on top of that, you bury it with sand, and four, you squash it down with a steamroll, and you just keep doing that over and over and over again until all the flubber was buried. And eventually, once they did get it all buried, they paved it all over and made it into a corporate parking lot. Now, one would guess that that would be the end of the Flubber fiasco, but apparently it is not. If we fast forward to the present day, you'll actually find some Hasbro employees who claim that on a hot summer day, the Flubber will actually ooze up through the cracks in the parking lot pavement. Now, it's probably just their imagination, but then you can not we can't help forget that this stuff seemed to take on a life of its own. Useless? Useful? Well, I'll leave
0: that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: And now a few words from today's retro sponsor.
0: My complexion's so bad, I hate to go out. Don't be a square. Try Ting, the faster way to clear up pimples. Yes, doctors' half-face tests prove Ting Medicated Cream dries up pimples more effectively than any other product tested. Here's why. Boys and girls have overactive oil glands. Excess oil clogged pores causes pimples. But Ting blots up oil faster, more completely than other products. In lab tests. Ting completely absorbed oil in 15 minutes. Hours later, other products still had not. No, hiding pimples won't help heal them. No mere cover-up can work like Ting's antiseptic medication. Remember, doctors' half-face tests prove Ting better in every case, better than any other remedy tested. Applied at bedtime, greaseless, stainless Ting dries to oil-absorbing powder that clings all night. Even helps heal acne-type blemishes. Don't let externally caused pimples spoil your fun. Get Ting Medicated Cream, T-I-N-G. See thrilling
1: improvement overnight or money back. That retro sponsored commercial dates back to 1959. Now interestingly enough, Ting Pimple Cream was removed from the market in 1961 when the doctor's half phase tests were actually declared to be cruel and unusual, even for teenagers. And that's why you don't see the product today. Although somehow the name Ting, Sting, just doesn't seem to go together. Probably not the best choice for a name of a product. Now for a few tidbits from history I like to call News of the Weird Past. And our first one goes back to March 3rd, 1923, Well, it was reported that 30%, nearly one-third of the population in New York City, was Jewish. And they gave some other statistics, such as Cleveland being 12%, Chicago and Philadelphia about 10%, Detroit, St. Louis, and Baltimore at 8%. Now, if you're curious, today they estimate that the Jewish population in New York City has fallen to about 12%. They don't know exactly because U.S. Census law forbids the asking of religion. Our next little story goes back to August 20th, 1928, and also takes place in New York City. In Brooklyn, it was reported that a guy named Harry Kaufman entered a subway train. He sat there for a while quietly and then began to inspect a lady named Anna Prisco, who was sitting directly opposite him. Of course, this made her very uncomfortable, and all of a sudden, he pulled out enormous binoculars and peered at her. Of course, she expressed annoyance, so Kaufman, the guy who was actually doing the peering, slapped her for some reason. Soon the chivalrous crowd attacked Kaufman and police arrested him and threw him in jail. Pretty amazing. and I really like this short little news story from December 30th, 1929, and it takes place in Florence, Kansas. And the postmaster there, Seamus O'Brien, was officially told by the U.S. Postal Service that he had to sell $800 worth of stamps by January 1st, or his salary would be cut and his office, his post office, would be degraded to a third-class ranking. Of course, the citizens of Florence were very upset at this time because a third-class post office meant no city mail delivery. Then, as luck would have it, in Chicago, a guy named Ben Minturn, who once lived in Florence and was a schoolmate of O'Brien, Read of his friend's predicament, wrote a letter, and enclosed a check for $1,000, where he ordered $900 worth of 2 cent stamps and $100 worth of 5 cent stamps, and of course saved the day and saved the post office. But of course, Minturn was very, very shrewd, ingenious you could say, because he knew that he could take those $1,000 worth of stamps, take them to his local post office in Chicago, and cash them in and get all his money back. And now for the answer to today's question of the day, which had to do with the term. Bluetooth. Why is the technology for short-range wireless networks called Bluetooth? Well, it turns out that the name has nothing to do with the technology at all. It's named after a Viking named Harald Bluetooth, who was the king of Denmark in the late 900s AD. And he managed to unite Denmark and Norway into a single kingdom and introduced the people of Denmark to Christianity. Which leads us to the modern-day use of the name. And in fact, the term Bluetooth, as I said before, has nothing to do with the technology itself. It really just signifies that the companies that were involved in bringing this technology, such as Ericsson, were of the Nordic region. Those were nations including Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. And because they're so important to the communications industry, they decided to use a name of a person honoring him from their history. So the Bluetooth technology is named after the king of Denmark from the late 900s A.D. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the Flubber Fiasco, as well as uh, hearing our retro sponsor, The News of the Weird Past, and, of course, a Question of the Day on Bluetooth. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. And as I've said in the past, they're available from your local bookseller, online retailers, and, of course, through your local library. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. You can also visit my website, which has more stories on it, and that is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And lastly, I'd appreciate it if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. And once again, I thank you for listening to the podcast, and hope you'll tune in the next time.